I think artistic research is one of the means that gives us clue. It's not about discovering something or innovating something. It's about generating clues for us. So artistic projects can give us clues, directions. If they are truly processed under this value of, let's say, embodied experiences, traditional knowledge, traditional understanding of the world, you know, Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa Dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Professor Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Bahanu Ashagri Deribu, the Ethiopian artist, scholar, activist, who gave the closing address at our 2020 ARA conference. Bahanu is currently a lecturer in the LA School of Fine Arts and Design at Addis Ababa University and is a doctoral candidate in the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. He graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the LA School, where he was the gold medal winner in his final year and subsequently studied for his Master of Fine Arts at the Utrecht Graduate School of the Arts in the Netherlands. Bahanu has been engaged with numerous individual and collective artistic projects, both inside and outside the studio environment, and has exhibited the results of his projects in Ethiopia, Germany, the Netherlands, France, Georgia, Italy, Greece, and Spain. In the last few years, Bahanu has been working with a particular emphasis on the human issues that have come from the modernization of urban spaces, notably in his home city of Addis Ababa. Bahanu, welcome. Very nice to be speaking again and to see you. And a tremendous amount has happened in the world and Ethiopia since you were here in January 2020, giving one of the keynotes at our ARA conference. So I hope we can, in the space of this hour, catch up with what you've been going through and also with the central question of what is artistic research in African contexts? And I understand you will speak specifically from an Ethiopian experience when you're dealing with that. So I thought we could maybe start with a very innovative program that you launched, I think, about six years ago at the LA School of Fine Arts and Design in Interdisciplinary Arts Practice. Could you tell us what was the motivations for starting such a program and what did you learn? What were the outcomes from the experience of running it? Yeah, th thank you, Christo. I'm really happy to be here and also to continue our conversations that have started last year in the conference. Yes, uh, we have launched uh, six years ago a multidisciplinary artist program in the Fine Arts School in Addis Ababa. But before talking about the program, maybe it would be productive to share some experiences how we developed this program in the school. I mean, after knowing how the art world functions and then how much institutions can offer to their students, it's really normal to have this desire to bring that conversation into your own institutional context, I would say. So having that in mind, in 2010, we have revised our curriculum in the bachelor program under the different units. 
And we have tried to incorporate some multidisciplinary practices and also like contemporary art history and theory. But we have learned that, you know, the fact that you have advanced curriculum doesn't make you able to give quality education, I would say, because it also requires different expertise and resources. Even if we have, let's say, succeeded in some ways to engage students in a productive manner, I would say it was not fully successful because you also have to work on the development of the staff, the faculty. You also have to make sure that uh, things are in place for your students to perform the, under this understanding of like multidisciplinarity and also having this research quality in their uh, education, in their practices. So uh, we have realized that uh, it was not that successful. So what we have developed is a, a different strategy for the undergraduate programs. The fine arts school relatively is a traditional school that gives mainly traditional subjects. So there was no accessible ways through which we can inform students new understandings in the arts. So what we did was we have opened up the school for local and international artists and art institutions to come and engage with us and just to work on collaborative projects. So we, I think we have succeeded in that manner. We managed to have many influential artists and scholars in the educational platform. And we have learned a lot that there is a huge interest among the students to be engaged in experimental and collaborative in a multidisciplinary manner. So when we learned this, uh, you know, just a couple of uh, staff members, active and concerned staff members. And at that time, in 2013, 2014, we also had an expat, mainly from Italy. She was a very active and a very positive person who committed her time, her expertise on the development of like quality education in the fine arts school. So we start to have experiences from different European institutions, especially on this idea of artistic research and how we can integrate it into our context. So we made a couple of benchmarks and we had uh, this conversation with different European institutions who were positive to help us and to work with us in, this, in the development of the curriculum to the MA program. So in that way, we managed to develop the curriculum. We also uh, considered our local realities and also accessibilities of resources in the educational institution. And we managed to launch a new MA program in the fine arts school in 2014. And we have started accepting students in 2015. And the program accepts, let's say, students between five to 12 until now. So according to the resources that we have, it's like an ideal number of students. But as I said, you know, it's not only about developing a refined and advanced curriculum. It's not also about developing new programs, but also it takes a lot of energy in our context, you know, just to make sure that things are in place 
for the education and also for further research activities that is required from the students. So uh, in order to fill that gap, we use the advantage of having this collaborative projects with different institutions and different professionals and different scholars that we are grateful to have their support. I mean, as an institution, we don't really have that much to offer them, but they truly understood the situation in which we are functioning in the academic context. And many scholars have involved on teaching, like for a short period of time. And we also, the, the university, Addis Ababa University was also uh, really supportive in that sense, uh, because we had the privilege to hire a couple of expat teachers from different contexts. But still, it's an ongoing struggle. You know, just to run the program is not as easy as it is in the undergraduate program. Because this MA program is developed under this understanding of artistic research, we want the students to be engaged in different place and community-based projects. And we try to open up different possibilities for them, you know, just uh, to be, let's say, open-minded and also to prepare themselves to face whatever difficulties and challenges that might be emerged in the process of their education. And so far, I would say we have, uh, we have been really successful. Most of the students graduated from the program are functioning very well locally and internationally. It was also a privilege for us to find ways to engage them in an international platform while they were students, because it doesn't really happen much in our context, you know, just to go out outside the, your country as a student and just to engage with other experiences in, uh, in other cultural and political uh, landscape. It's a huge privilege, but we have managed, you know, just to facilitate such kind of international involvements. And I believe students are really getting a, a lot of benefits out of it. Because in the undergraduate program, you don't really have this possibility to know and to understand how the world works just in the context of the arts. You don't have these necessary tools just to make sense you know, in your own practices. So the program really tries to offer this kind of additional skills and uh, competencies for the students. But anyone can imagine how difficult it is to run this kind of program in the context through which we are functioning. It's not always productive, but there are also moments of disappointments, like that all the time emerges in the process, you know. Uh, it's not only about the, the teachers, it's not only about the students, it's not only about the, you know. Sometimes things might not work on the way that we as an institution or as professors wants to, to happen in our relationship. But I think with the very limited resources that we have, especially in the African context, we have to redefine our affiliation with institutions. I mean, not only for the students, but also for the teachers, you know. Our relationship with students needs to be genuine. We need to push ourselves to be selfless in a way how we interact with our students. Because if you see like the different ways through which the institution functions, I mean, we should really have different layers of questions that we should continuously ask ourselves, you know, how much information are we giving to the students? How much knowledge are we making available 
for the students, you know, how much resources are accessible for them. So it's not only about developing a program, but we should really continuously ask and push ourselves towards delivering what is required by the condition of the students, I would say. More or less, this is uh, how the program is uh, happening and it's still running. And uh, there are like a few staff members who are trying to push the boundaries and the limitations for the benefit of the students. Bahanu, how long is the program for students? Is it a two-year MA? Yeah, it's a two-year program. In the first year, they also study not only the artistic research subjects, but also the academic or scientific research modalities, let's say. So we make sure in their first year studies, they they have a certain form of understanding what it is to deal with artistic research. But also we make sure, at least we try to make sure that they have the necessary tools and uh, understanding through which a scientific and academic research is expected to be processed. And the second year, more or less, we develop different references for them, like as in general for the older students. But at the same time, we approach each student based on the nature of their own project and the, the nature of their own interest. So uh, we have designed uh, the, the program to be for two years, like it's full-time program. And the last semester, you know, it's like four semesters. The last semester, the students have more time with their own self to process their research activities autonomously, let's say, and to develop their uh, graduation projects, which finally they will deliver to an open uh, platform. And you've now had a couple of cohorts of students who have completed the two-year program. And... Do most of them go on to practice as artists or do graduates move into areas of activism, of community work? Yeah, that, that's a wonderful question, uh, Christo, uh, because it's really important for, uh, for, for the program, also for us as teachers, let's say. The program is designed to allow students from different disciplines to be enrolled. So we have students not only from the visual art, but also from the performing arts, uh, from architecture, from philosophy, from psychology, and from different social fields, let's say. We don't really have that much restrictions on the background of the students to be enrolled. So what matters is like they have accepted BA degree, and they are expected to submit their portfolio and then their intended project proposal, let's say, like initial project proposal. So the outcome, I mean, when when students are graduated, it's different because some of them come from the architectural background, some of them are from the theater background, some of them are from music, some of them are, you know, from the fine art, some of them are also teachers, you know, uh, in different universities. So the way they go after graduation is, uh, is, is somehow undefined. But what I can tell you is that uh, most of the students, it really changes the way how they engage in their artistic practices or in their creative practices. I know some students who have graduated from the program 
who became active in the political conversation, let's say. There are students who are actively involving in an international platform because the program had the possibility to offer this exposure for the students, you know, just to have common language with similar artists or creative people outside the country. So there is no uh, defined way of functioning after graduation, but I can tell you that most of them are actively involving in different, let's say, productive, political, social, and aesthetic context. When I give this speech in the conference, I also say that the program is full of disappointments, but at the same time, it's full of satisfactions. You know, you see the productive engagement. So even if like it sounds like a vicious circle, you know, it's disappointing, but at the same time, it's really encouraging. So, I mean, realizing or recognizing our incapability of offering everything that is needed or recognizing the limitations that we have, we equally embrace the disappointment that we are facing every time, you know. So I think with all the problematics there is, the, the program is very productive and then I would do anything as part of the program, as part of the, inst the institution to make sure that this program runs properly, you know, for which I was in sabbatical two years ago and I, I was not expected to do anything in the school, but I was giving classes in this program, you know, and since October 2020, I am on leave. You know, I don't really have any teaching commitments for the next four years, but for the last two semesters, I've been teaching like voluntarily. So if each of us have invested a little bit more effort in the program, we can make sure that the program is productive enough, you know, just to generate a knowledge production platform that will benefit not only the students, but also the institution, but also the, the country, but also the continent, you know. We will produce like qualified students that can really share something in the different platforms. Oh, I wish you well with it. It's a very exciting program. I think we need something like that here in South Africa. You're pointing a way forward for African art schools to move in the direction of research and arts practices research. Now, you yourself have been obviously at the LA School at Addis Ababa University, but you've also been very involved with the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts, and you were an artist researcher there, and you've now, from 2020, you've begun doing their PhD program in artistic research practice. Could you reflect a bit on the difference between the environment, the opportunities, the kind of pressures and limitations at University of Addis Ababa and at the Vienna Academy, you know, to use these as two examples of the continental divide. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know if it is a, let's say, a proper act to discuss the situation in Addis and in Vienna. It's very important to understand the difference of the context, you know, just in Addis Ababa and then in Vienna. In Vienna, I mean, the institution offers everything, let's say. You have all the possibilities, you have all the resources that you need to work on your own, 
research, let's say. So I think in the Vienna context and probably in the European context, it's not about the students or the researchers or the artist researchers. In, in, the, in the Vienna case or in the European case, it's more about the students, the artist researchers. It's not about the institution because the institution offers everything, more or less. So the quality of the research can be measured not according to the institution, but according to the artist researcher who is engaged inside this institution. But in the artist context, it's not about the students because the students doesn't really have this access of resources. Also the language itself, they didn't really have the possibility to develop the language of research in their previous education. Forget about the education, but how much we struggled to make this podcast recording when I was in Addis, you know? So the internet is one of the resources that we have. So it's really impossible uh, to compare the two platforms, I would say. But in the Addis context, and most probably in many places in the global south, we have like endless knowledge that is uh, embodied in the community which I think is not much available in the European case. So one of the things that makes us incapable of making sense is that we, in the African context, we don't really value much about the knowledge that is embodied within the community. And the limited possibility that we have to explore our different epistemological ontological and cosmological understanding about the world. So if I compare, you know, just these two different platforms, I would say in the European case, most of the things are available for the artist researcher. And if the artist researcher pushes himself or pushes the boundary, it's possible to do something. But in the other context, you know, the resources are limited. You know, just we don't really encourage our students to be open-minded and just to experiment without limitations, you know. They are always afraid of the institutional framework. So we always ask them to fit in in a specific uh, academic box, let's say. So that is not allowing us to develop a different understanding of artistic research that is more important to our context, I would say. But, you know, just if I share my research experience, I was like working as an artist researcher in the Vienna Academy of Art since 2018 until 2020. It was a wonderful uh, journey, but it was not only, let's say, as romantic as it seems. You know, it's a privilege to find myself in an European institution recognized as an artist researcher and then invested a lot of money and resources on my research. So it's very important to acknowledge that. It's a privilege, you know, just to find myself in that position. But when you talk about the process, it's not as romantic as many people think. You know, just an African person, an African artist having this position, like researcher position, in a, one of the oldest school in Europe, right? It was a learning process, I would say, because my research site was in Addis. 
and my working place was in Vienna. So I was supposed to travel back and forth continuously. So this idea of crossing and this idea of the return was part of the research process, you know, just without having the possibility to remain, you know? So whenever I am, let's say in Addis, I miss Vienna, you know? Whenever I am in Vienna, I miss Addis. So just, it's really legitimate to think that one can be closer to both spaces, but it's not like that, you know? Just, it's like you can really find yourself far from both sides, I would say. But according to accessibility of resources and the open-ended possibilities that you have in Europe, it's unimaginable in the context of Addis Ababa, I would say. And sometimes I wish, you know, that's why when we uh, revised this curriculum, you know, in the undergraduate program in Addis in 2010, I had this desire, you know, because I studied in Holland for my MA and I realized how much institutions can offer to their students. So when I compare, you know, this institutional reality uh, with Addis Ababa, and it's really painful. So you develop this desire, you know, just to bring that conversation in your own educational platform. So that's what I'm like as, a, as an individual uh, teacher, let's say, in the, in the academy, in the fine arts school in Addis Ababa. This is one of the things I'm trying to do, you know. Students should let's say, have this experience, what Paolo Ferrere and Bell Hooks calls, you know, education should be a practice of freedom. But how much freedom are we giving, you know, just to our students, not only in a Ababa context, also, you can also maybe just uh, see the situation, let's say, in a school of the arts, you know, students are, have like this endless interest, endless desire to accomplish something. But when we ask ourselves, you know, just as an institution, how much are we giving them? You know, how much access are we offering to the students? It's a, a complete uh, problematic position, I would say. And Bahano, I agree. That's very much a difference. As an artist researcher, what kind of projects were you engaged with in Vienna? One of the exciting part of the research project I was involved with for two years was that it was a collective research project and there were six sites, international sites, inside the so-called uh, the Global South. So apart from, let's say, the common institutional or academic understanding in the West, we were allowed to insert references from our communities, let's say from embodied experiences. So the research project was mainly processed under the different understanding in the global south, without having, let's say, the limitations to deal with this popular theory and philosophy in the West. When I say this, you know, just we didn't really uh, depart from the understanding of the West, but we were dealing with this concept of the ecologies of knowledge. We were equally allowed to deal with the understanding of the West, the Eurocentric knowledge production system, and also to value 
and make use of the different cosmological and ontological understandings in the global south. So the project was focused on dispossession, mainly in relation to land. And there were like six sites, and then we developed some kind of tools and activities in which we offer possibilities for dispossessed communities to find a way to create different worlds, let's say, despite dispossession. Mm. It's been published. I've actually seen the book, the open source publication. It was published this year. Yeah. But the good thing is, I told you, you know, we were really, uh, we took our community seriously when we work on this research project. It was not in the plan when we started the project, but at the end, you know, passing through all these experiences and knowledge production process, we demand just to have this book accessible to the different localities. So the book is now translated in five international languages, uh, including the Amharic. So this book is not only going to be published in the English version, but I will also make it accessible to the local context and the local language. So I think it was really a wonderful learning experience through which we allow ourselves to be dispossessed, let's say, by the possibilities we have in our localities. Mm. Yeah. Your project in that collaboration was called Care and Become. And it struck me that it was a fascinating work with embodiment and formativity and above all gesture. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about how you went about the project and what went into it? What came out of it? Gladly, Christo. My project, Care and Become, starts from the violent history of the city Addis Ababa and how this history of violence is haunting contemporary relationships of societies. In my research, you know, I believe that what's happening in Ethiopia now starts from the establishment, the early establishment of the, the city. And during this establishment of the city, there are a certain group of people. I don't really like this idea of ethnic but a certain group of people claims to be victimized during the early establishment and then the early expansion of the city. And this feeling of victimization didn't really get the platform to properly discussed by the state and also by the different group of society. So this confined and differed grief has been sustained for 130 years. And this particular history of violence was not a written history, you know. It's an oral history that a certain group of people are passing it orally to their children. So now this uh, deferred grief has been slowly changed to become a grief. And then I believe that this feeling of like a grief or indignation can be a potential possibility to reshape collective becoming, but it also has a potential to be destructive. So I'm using this idea or this idea of like grief as a potential to bring people together in precarious times. So basically in my project, I am exploring the power of mourning as a means 
to bring people together despite and because of differences and to develop some kind of language or tools that can equally be aesthetic, pedagogical, and political. So the project Karen Become, I have developed some tools or some devices or some language that can also be adapted by the different cultural platforms or different localities. It's not only situated to the Addis Ababa context or to the Ethiopian context, but it's also opening it to be adapted by the different dispossessed people, I would say. It struck me you'd created a, a vocabulary of gestures and movements that had come out of performative engagements in the city with community. Am I right? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, you also know that in the African context, it's not only, I think, in African context, but in many global South contexts, no one is meant to grieve or to mourn alone. In many African traditions, we even have traditional community formations on the basis of care, on the basis of loss and vulnerability. If I talk about the case in Ethiopia, we have this thing that we call a dir. It's a, a, a traditional association based on bereavement and mourning. You know, when someone experiences a loss, there is a support structure, you know, just within the community that helps, let's say, to facilitate the healing process of this loss. And we also have like mourning traditions. I am not sure about South African context, but in the Ethiopian context, in, in many African traditions, we have this performative element in our practice of mourning. In Ethiopia, we, just, we have lots of uh, different traditions. Let's say if you talk about the center, we have this uh, mourning uh, exercises, incorporate uh, like poems, gestures, movements, you know, also just physical appearance as well. If you go to the South, it also includes music and dancing as well. So I tried, you know, just to explore and to understand these different gestures, movements, sounds, songs, and poems. I call them lamenting poems, you know. So I just tried to understand and explore these different mourning traditions. And I tried to develop engaging encounters, let's say, using this different language, you know, the vocal, you know, the sound and uh, the, the songs and then the gestures and the movement. And I developed this language, you know, just to be activated in different sites of disposition. It's not, it's not only about using this mourning traditions, you know, just to stay there as an idea of mourning, but with a desire and an intention to activate them as an element of protest, as an element of struggle, you know, just beyond this idea of mourning to bring them into a political uh, platform, still to bring people beside their differences, you know. And yes, yeah, I, I developed all these gestures, movements and performances from these mourning traditions. No, it's absolutely fascinating. And in terms of a social intervention in Addis, did this go beyond the hypothetical 
or were you able to make any kind of intervention into the the tensions on the ground over dispossession, over ownership? That's a good question, actually. You know, just artistic practice for me is not about discovery. You know, it's not about only the outcome, but the quality of the process was very important for me. So in the process, I organized six full days workshop with uh, different creative individuals from different cultural backgrounds. You know, just this idea of Africa, you know, Ethiopia. Even in Ethiopia, we have lots of cultures, you know, completely different cultures, different languages, you know, different traditions, different understanding of the world, different religions. And I invited these people, uh, these individuals, you know, just to work with me as a collective, but not under this idea of participatory art, because I still have a problem with participation or participatory art, because it still allows the artist, you know, just to be in the center of the relationship. So in this case, you know, I invited all these different individuals not to take part in it, you know, just as a participant or as an audience, not to be only guests, but hosts at the same time. They are hosts. So each individual participant in the workshop had a certain responsibility to activate through the workshop. So in the workshop, we have made different public space engagements. We had like ritual making practice in the city. There is this mountain in Mount Toto where physically, like literally, where the city starts. So we choose that site as one of the places to moor and just to have ways through which we can deal with the ghosts of violence. And we also had walking practice. We also had a public space mourning exercise. We also make gesture exercise in public space and vocal exercise in public space, like in sites of disposition. And we consider this practice as an encoded form of protest, let's say. Because in an oppressive society, we don't really have that much possibility to express our grief, you know, to express our pain and suffering. So I believe that it's very important to develop different language through which we can engage on this idea or practice of protest. We also had like a lamenting poem reading exercise in a public bus, in a moving public bus. Uh, it was an, a collective act. So as an artistic practice, it was enough to develop the language as an aesthetic, pedagogical, and political tool. But if you ask me, you know, just in a societal level, it really requires time, I would say. And that's the center of my PhD research project. You know, how can this language, this aesthetic, pedagogical, and the political language on the basis of care and mourning can reach the larger you know, just can influence or can facilitate an effective encounter in the larger social platform. And how do you envisage that project developing now that you're taking that into the PhD? We all are like living through very problematic time <laughs> in human history, right? But I'm, now I am taking time, you know, just to check different accounts, Christoph. 
it's very important to understand different ways or different languages or different experiences of societies. It's not only about the case in Ethiopia or in Africa or in the global south, but it requires to have a very calm experience with it. You know, just it needs to be processed. You need to read a lot, you know, just to check different ways, you know, and to understand different languages, you know, just to understand different effects of violence and how people manage, you know, just to overcome these victimizations in different contexts. So at this stage, I am reading, I'm checking different accounts, and I am also closely following different community and political struggles, which are very important for me. And also, you know, just how this idea or concept or practice of mourning and how a strong political community can be developed under this idea of vulnerability and loss. Because if you really look back to very important and influential political and social struggles, many of them have facilitated under this idea of loss. But the way how you develop that kind of strong political community, I think requires a very careful listening. So I think at this stage in my PhD project, I am trying to carefully listen and witness before going further, you know, to develop or to refine language or form of encounters. Bahanu, this project that you've described sounds extremely relevant right across the global south. How does the anger, the sense of dispossession, the mourning that you've described emerge within educational institutions? That's a very important question, uh, I think, Christo. You know, just when it comes to accessibility of resources inside institutions, it's very important to start by recognizing the fact that we always have limited resources. And understanding that fact would help us to find a responsible position to make sure that those limited resources are distributed equally or equally accessible among the parties involved. So in this case, I think institutions have like two tasks. One, to make sure that these limited resources are fairly distributed and two, to keep fighting for generating more resources, you know, in the context. So in that sense, the main question, I think the valid question here is how much work, how much time are we investing to make sure that this limited resource is fairly distributed? I think that's a very important question and valid one when it comes to many African institutions. But if I tell you, you know, my experience, I think we repeatedly fail in that. You know, there are many factors inside the institution that makes this process of accessing resources in a more productive and in a more legitimate manner. There are like these different factors, you know, it could be age, it could be class, gender, and race are the main factors behind, you know, just failing like this continuous failure to make resources accessible among the students and the staff members. 
So in this case, it's always important to understand that there are more vulnerable students than the others. Judith Butler, you know, just talks about this vulnerability. You know, we are living in a world where vulnerability is not equally distributed. So that's what makes us spending more time and more energy on fighting on something that is and that is not necessarily at the same time. So when it comes to institutions, I think it's very important to understand the vulnerable position of students and to make whatever is available equally distributed among the students. So when we fail in that regard, students will develop other dimension of working, other dimension of functioning, because it's really easy to understand or to feel that exclusion somehow. So when that exclusion comes, when that inaccessibility of resources is experienced among students, students will have to find other productive ways of generating support, support structure. And that support structure is something that would be developed among themselves, among the excluded ones, among these students or faculties who are uh, unable to equally access the resources. So I see this form of functioning, you know, just trying to come together and to find ways to develop support structures among themselves, which really help their process of learning and studying. But at the same time, eventually it will affect the institutions. So as there, is, there, are, there will be a point where institutes would suffer from the gap of their own making, I would say. So before all this uh, struggle comes, this unnecessary energy, you know, just before it's being invested, I think institutions have the responsibility to make sure that resources are distributed fairly. If you remember, I think, uh, of course, you remember because it's one of the most important and effective uh, student movement in Africa. I think it was in 2015 or uh, afterward, I'm, I'm not sure, but there was this um, uh, student's movement, fees must fall. That struggle of students, where it was not their job, you know, just to struggle for that. It shows the failure of the institutions. It was the job of the institutions to make sure that the university as a space of learning is accessible to all. But, you know, just it became a class issue at some point. So students were supposed to find other ways to maintain their presence inside the university. So this inaccessibility or incapability of accessing resources would develop other form of community. And that community is based on this anger, this indignation, and it's also a process of mourning. So in one side, I see this kind of engagement of the students, you know, just being angry, being involved in some kind of struggle, very important. But at the same time, we also have a possibility to manage that before it happens. So in that way, you know, just, it's a win-win situation, I would say. And uh, I remember last time when I was in Johannesburg, I sensed this tension just between uh, some students and the institution. And it's not something that you expect someone to tell you, you know, you can see that. I, I could see that. 
there are like these very smart, active, mainly black students who I found to be like angry in their process of engagement. And that anger is a product of loss, a product of, you know, just this indignation that they have experienced maybe inside the institution. You know, it's not the only context, uh, I would say. I don't know about the historical background of those anger, but since I encountered that anger inside institutional context, I see that there is some level of exclusion there, some reality in which some students are not accessing resources that they were supposed to. So that anger, I see it as a platform of creating a community based on that loss, that indignation. And that anger would help them to facilitate a support structure among themselves. If you see it closely, it's not a road that will lead them to failure. Instead, it will make them more capable, you know, uh, through their educational uh, activities. So in that sense, my fear is not about the students because the students are making themselves somehow capable, you know, just to manage a certain form of engagement among themselves to facilitate the studying and the learning process. So if it stays there, it, it will not only be an educational case, you know, it's also become a, a political case. So in that sense, eventually it's not the students, but the institution will start feeling or experiencing this isolation. So this idea of mourning and loss happens everywhere, I would say. So when it comes to institutions, it's mainly generated through this incapability or this impossibility of accessing resources in fair ground. And in that way, I see more responsibility on the institutions than students or let's say individual uh, faculty members. So this is, I think, something that as an African institution, we have to work more, you know, just with a certain level of care and responsibility. And do you see artistic practice as research modalities as playing a role in dealing with that anger, that indignation? Yes, I think that's the very exciting part of artistic research, you know, because the academic research, there are like, restrictions, let's say, in dealing with academic or scientific research. But artistic research, you know, just considering that scientific and academic research, you know, it has to have that element inside, but it's not yet restricted, you know, through which you can experiment and you can develop, produce knowledge in it. It's a perfect approach, let's say, you know, just to deal with this social, political and aesthetic dimensions. And... That's why I'm really interested on this idea of artistic research in African context, because we have lots of problems. You know, violence is a part of our everyday life, you know, and there are multiple reasons for us to feel sad, to experience this feeling of loss. And what makes us, let's say, similar, you know, I'm not talking about the physical aspect of ourselves, but what makes us similar in the context of, the, in general, in the global south, like communities are continuously struggling against lots of obstacles. 
and governments and the state and the politics in the mainstream language of politics is not making things happen, you know? So it's very important as a society to come together. That's the way how we can tackle our collective problems. And through this process, I think artistic research is one of the means that gives us clue. It's not about discovering something or innovating something. It's about generating clues for us. So in the Ethiopian case, now it's impossible to mourn together, you know, because societies are identifying themselves as different than the other. But all of us are dealing with the same obstacles. So for our collective becoming, what is important is to come together, to understand each other, to develop our uh, respectful relationships, you know. And it's, it's not about like healing the past. You know, it's impossible. It's not about dealing with the scars of violence, the scars of colonization, you know, the scars of the oppression, you know. It's beyond that. We should really deal first on the active wound that's affecting us collectively. So artistic projects can give us clues, directions. You know, if they are truly processed under this value of, let's say, embodied experiences, traditional knowledge, traditional understanding of the world, you know. So if you talk about the Eurocentric form of knowledge production, it's a universe. There is one knowledge, there is one philosophy, you know, there is one understanding of the world. But in the different localities in the African context, we respect the, the presence of the different worlds. It's not only about one religion, it's not only about one language. We respect that difference. We respect the pluriversal aspect of the world. So I think artistic research is one of the very, very productive ways through which we can generate clues how all this understanding and knowledge can be a solution, can create an alternative way through which we deal with our problems, with our challenges, you know, with our frustrations, with our loss. So I do believe that uh, artistic research can, definitely can be a very potential way through which we can explore this different understandings, I would say. Bahandu, I think that's a very, very inspiring point to finish on. This has been a very good discussion. Thank you very much. And I like your optimism, but your provisional, realistic approach to dealing with these enormous challenges, social, political, institutional, that, that we face here in Africa, certainly. Yeah, definitely. It was a great privilege, you know, just to have this discussion. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Bahano Ashagri Deribu, the Ethiopian visual artist, lecturer, and activist. The podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosvier 
and is used under a Creative Commons license.